We need the principled press to hold power to account, to, to call them on the carpet for every outrage. Really? Why start now? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI News Radio. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York, 102.9 FM WLPP. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're also streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe, as usual, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, Radio Sputnik, Blanketing Planet Earth. On all of those fine affiliates and many others, five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com thank you for joining us today thank you desi doyan for joining us today i say you're a swell fellow occasionally as well well yeah too occasionally for my (laughs) money anyway uh good to see you uh coming up it's it's not just donald trump who has unprecedented conflicts of interest as he prepares to be sworn in as president of the united states two weeks from now it's also his swamp of cabinet officials and advisors uh, who have been nominated and who also have unprecedented conflicts of interest between their own corporate histories and the government departments and federal agencies that they have been nominated to run and or advise. And uh, speaking of unprecedented, an unprecedented blizzard of Senate confirmation hearings are scheduled to pretty much all take place at once this week in a way that will make it impossible, really, for senators themselves to actually participate in uh, these the, these oversight hearings, much less for the media to be able to report on them. That, even as the Office of Government Ethics warns that they have not yet had time to fully vet many of Donald Trump's nominees who are set to appear at these hearings this week, all held at once, Um, And this is uh, historically unprecedented. The Office of Government Ethics usually vets these people before their uh, Senate hearings. So much more on that with my guests shortly. But first, uh, some good news. It looks like we don't have to worry at all about that shooting, by the way, that killed five and wounded six others last week at the Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport in Florida as we were going to air. We don't have to worry about it. It's no big thing. It wasn't terrorism, apparently. It was just an American guy, a National Guardsman, uh, a National Guard vet who had served several months in Iraq. Uh, We'd all still be talking about this all of these days later had it been what we now describe as terrorism in this country. But as you know, 
uh, Americans who are not influenced by a Muslim extremist group, they're they're allowed to shoot as many people as they want without anybody freaking out, apparently, or or having to take action to prevent these mass shootings in the future, whether they're at airports or movie cinemas or high schools or universities or planned parenthood medical facilities. It's no big thing. Just so long as the shooter doesn't proclaim allegiance to someone in the Middle East, then, of course, you know, we'd have to try to pretend to do something about it. Uh, As is, however, before the Fort Lauderdale airport shooting, the sixth mass mass shooting of the year, which, by the way, is just over a week old as we go to air. And yet we've had six mass shootings in the U.S. You probably haven't heard about most of them because, you know, not terrorism. So no worries. But just before that shooting, elected Republican officials in the state of Florida were eager to make such mass shootings even easier in the future. Uh, Several days before the airport shooting, uh, Florida lawmakers were working on a bill to allow guns in airports. Just last week, Florida lawmakers began rallying support for SB 140, a state bill which would repeal laws which, among other things, ban guns in airport terminals like the one where the shooting occurred. If passed, according to Think Progress, the legislation would allow those with concealed carry licenses to bring guns into passenger terminals. In the wake of the shooting, Florida Governor Rick Scott uh, was saying uh, this is no time for politics. Quote, it's no time to be political, he said. It's never any time to be political after these shootings or before these shootings or in between these shootings. When it comes to Republicans, they're happy to say, no, this is not the right time to talk about this. But apparently it was the right time to talk about it just days before the shooting actually happened. Florida's bill was sent to committee just three days before the shooting. It was uh, believed to have a high likelihood of passage out of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Similar legislation had previously died in that committee because the former chair didn't schedule a vote for it. But that former chair lost his bid for reelection and the new chair, Republican by the name of Greg Stube or Stoib, uh, he's a sponsor of this bill. The chair of this committee, he sponsored this bill. He's a huge proponent of getting rid of what they describe as gun free zones. The bill was also assigned to a committee that was chaired by a, uh, a Republican senator who sponsored the House version of Florida's stand your ground law. And another chaired by a Republican who voted in favor of allowing concealed carry guns on college campuses. So at least until the shooting at the end of last week, This bill appeared to be on the fast track uh, uh, to be passed to make it even easier for there to be more guns in more places, because, you know, that's the solution to everything. Rather than looking to allow more guns in airport terminals, however, security officials are concerned that there aren't enough regulations to keep them out. Patrick Gannon, the deputy executive director for law enforcement and homeland security out here at the L.A. International Airport, told The Wall Street Journal that I am very concerned about a weapon in this airport, talking about LAX. This incident highlights that concern. Well, you would think so. The Florida shooter reportedly emptied his handgun clip and then replaced it with a with another at least uh, at least once during the shooting that took place in all of 80 seconds before armed police are said to have arrived. Nonetheless, Florida officials apparently think it'd be a great idea if there were others who were also armed 
in that same airport, and they could start firing sooner than 80 seconds somehow in response uh, in this crowded airport terminal in a baggage area. Yeah, so what's the I could see no downside to that. People ought to just take out their guns and start shooting. When the shooter started uh, on Friday, when he started shooting, others in the baggage claim area could have just pulled out their guns. They could have started shooting back so that the, the police, when they arrived in 80 seconds, 80 seconds later, when the police arrived, they could have just joined the fun by shooting everyone who was shooting someone else, bad guy or not. What could possibly go wrong with that plan? More guns, not fewer guns. That's the only way to stop our gun violence problem, apparently. And I have no doubt that Republicans and their terror-supporting funders at the arms industry uh, lobbying group that calls itself the National Rifle Association or the NRA will ensure that they just do exactly that. Even in Florida, where you would think that the GOP would now know better or would be embarrassed... The GOP, you should know by now, they never learn stuff. They are never embarrassed by anything. So uh, I'm sure it'll be just full steam ahead for the for those brave Americans fighting to assure that we continue our gun violence epidemic into the future for many years to come. Good luck, Florida. All right. Um, Rex Tillerson. <laughs> Good friend of your. I know you're a fan of him, Desi <laughs> Doyen. Uh, CEO of ExxonMobil? Yeah, yeah. Well, not for long. Not for long. This is true. This week is shaping up to be one of the most consequential of uh, Donald Trump's transitions as senators are preparing to consider as many as eight cabinet nominees in committee. All this week, Republicans are under fire from Democrats and ethics officials for scheduling these confirmation hearings before investigators completed a background examination for each nominee, a precedent that actually goes back decades, according to The Washington Post. But Sunday, Republican leaders vowed to press ahead nonetheless, saying there are no plans to change the schedule. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told uh, CBS has faced the nation on Sunday. The Democrats should, quote, grow up and get past the election results. So what are we, what are we looking forward uh, to this week? On Tuesday, the Senate Judiciary Committee will hear uh, uh, testimony from and about Senator Jeff Sessions, Republican from Alabama, concerning his appointment as attorney general. On the same day, on Tuesday, Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs uh, we'll hear John, uh, General John Kelly's uh, appointment for Homeland Security Secretary. On Wednesday, Jeff Sessions' hearing will continue for a second day instead of going four days as uh, John Ashcroft's uh, 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 hearing went back in, uh, what was it, 2000, in the year, I guess, the year 2000, 2001, under George W. Bush, which was at least four days, 25 witnesses. This will be only for Jeff Sessions two days and Democrats will only be allowed to call four witnesses. Also on Wednesday, Senate Foreign Relations Committee Rex uh, will hear Rex Tillerson's appointment for Secretary of State. The Senate Select Committee on Intelligence will have the hearing for uh, Congressman Monk, Mike Pompeo for CIA Director. The Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee We'll hold the hearing for Betsy DeVos, the nominee for the Education Secretary. And also on Wednesday, the Senate Commerce, Science and Transportation Committee will have a hearing on Elaine Chow, Mitch McConnell's wife, uh, who has been nominated for Transportation Secretary. 
That's just Tuesday and Wednesday. On Thursday, the Tillerson hearing uh, is expected to continue. The Senate Commerce, Science and Transportation Committee will have a hearing for Wilbur Ross, who's been nominated as Commerce Secretary. And the Senate Banking House and Urban Affairs (laughs) Committee will have a hearing on Ben Carson. Dr. Ben Carson, who has been for some reason nominated as Housing and Urban Development Secretary. And uh, tentatively, the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee will begin hearings uh, for Andrew Puzder, the Labor Secretary. The PAC schedule uh, has uh, led uh, Hawaii Senator Brian uh, Schatz to say uh, simultaneous hearings on cabinet nominees make it physically impossible for most of us on multiple committees to advise and consent. Physically impossible. They can't be at all of these hearings at one time. And that, of course, is why the Republicans planned it this way. He says, add to that the lack of full disclosure of the standard ethics information, and we're being asked to rubber stamp a cabinet. He also notes the current plan is uh, for these hearings to be more brief than usual without multiple rounds of questions. At the same time, it has been six months since Donald Trump has held a news conference. Guess when he's going to do one? Supposedly, unless he cancels it again, he will also be doing it on Wednesday when all of those hearings will be underway. And at the same time on Wednesday, the Senate will be considering its first budget resolution of the new Congress. So that means uh, Mitch McConnell, the, uh, the, the, the majority leader in the Senate, uh, is scheduling a voterama, which means one vote after another on amendment after amendment, dozens of amendment votes. That's all going to go on Wednesday. So good luck to media uh, who might want to uh, to cover these hearings. Good luck to senators who might actually give a damn about oversight. Good luck to us for covering any of it. Uh, it will not be easy. Well, good luck to the public, too, because the public is not going to hear any of this stuff. They're not going to hear anything in any depth. No one's going to have time to read, you you know, even six Mm -hmm. articles on each of the hearings that would occur on Wednesday, Mm -hmm. plus the press conference about that if Trump ever actually does it. I mean, flooding the zone like this. There's no media outlet that has, I would think, the resources to deploy reporters to all of this. This is expensive stuff to cover. And there's no way that it's all going to get out. And yet, who's going to stop them? It's uh, it is absolutely unprecedented, which the Office of Government Ethics, the OGE, has been trying to uh, to make clear. New emails reveal that they uh, that the office reportedly, quote, lost contact with President elect Donald Trump's team during the ongoing transition to power, despite efforts to warn officials about ethical issues posed by the not by his nominees, according to emails uncovered by MSNBC, the OGE director uh, Walter Schaub contacted Trump aides in November, expressing deep frustration with the lack of cooperation between his organization and the president-elect's team. And MSNBC noted that the emails, which were obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request, included a few details. Uh, Very few details regarding any efforts by the president-elect to divest from assets of his own that could result in potential conflicts of interest during his presidency. Schaub also argued that Trump's staff was risking, quote, embarrassment by refusing to allow the ethics office to review the financial records of potential cabinet selections before they were announced. 
saying that some could potentially violate federal law. It's unclear how much, never mind the government, uh, the Office of Government Ethics, how much uh, has Donald Trump actually vetted these people? Have they had to turn their uh, tax returns over to Donald Trump? Do they even know? Do they even care? The news uh, has angered many progressives on Capitol Hill and many uh, uh, pundits out there, especially given these uh, fast approaching Senate hearings that were just recently scheduled to confirm the nominee, the nominees, according to Think Progress. Schaub expressed his own exasperation with the situation in a letter sent on uh, on Friday to U.S. senators. Here's a piece of that uh, piece of that letter. Uh, Schaub wrote as the OGE's director. The announced hearing schedule for several nominees who have not completed the ethics review process is of great concern to me. More significantly, it has left some of the nominees with potentially unknown or unresolved ethics issues shortly before their scheduled hearings. I'm not aware of any occasion in the four decades since the OGE was established when the Senate held a confirmation hearing before the nominee had completed the ethics review process. Even conservatives such as Norm Ornstein of the right-leaning American Enterprise Institute uh, appeared to also be appalled by this on Saturday. He called the effort to confirm these appointees who were not vetted by the OGE as unprecedented so who or what are we uh, are we talking about here public citizen which is a public advocacy group a nonpartisan public advocacy group uh, says that media activists nonprofits policymakers and others who are concerned about all of this can now at least track the corporate ties of president-elect Donald Trump's cabinet picks and other top political appointees they've set up a website called corporate cabinet dot org corporate cabinet dot org uh, on Friday public citizen unveiled the new website to uh, they say expose corporate ties corrupting influences and con- uh, conflicts of interest in Trump's cabinet which threatens to be more entangled with corporate interest than any cabinet in recent memory many of the nominees have connections with corporations whose profit driven interests are directly at odds with the federal agencies that Trump has selected them to lead Uh, Just some of them that they list in this announcement, Vice President-elect Mike Pence, he has strong ties to Coke Industries, they all do, Coke Industries, and he raked in eye-popping sums from the finance sector, construction industry, pharmaceutical industry, and chemical industry. Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary nominee and longtime Goldman Sachs executive who was steeped in the investment banking industry long before it became the poster child for uh, economy-wrecking, foreclosure-inducing Wall Street greed. Mnuchin uh, later helped run a failed bank accused of duplicitous foreclosure practices. Then there's General James Mattis. He's being considered for Secretary of Defense. He served on the board of General Dynamics, a multinational military contractor. U.S. Senator Jeff Sessions, of course, he's under consideration for attorney general. He's the darling of the finance, insurance and real estate industries, among others. Betsy DeVos, she's named to be education secretary. She's a billionaire. uh, (laughs) She's a billionaire whose husband is heir to the Amway fortune. Elaine Chow, she's up to run the U.S. Department of Transportation. She served on the board of directors of Wells Fargo during the cross-selling scandal that we recently reported on late last year. 
that recently led to the disgrace and resignation of the Wells Fargo CEO. Then there's former Goldman Sachs executive Gary Cohn. He's slated to head the National Economic Council. He led Goldman Sachs as it profited off the housing market collapse in part by misleading its own clients. There's Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt, Trump's pick to run the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. He has a deep affinity for the fossil fuel companies, having passed on their letters as his own to federal regulators as he served as attorney general in Oklahoma. Steve Bannon, of course, a special political advisor to Trump. He once ran Breitbart.com, but he's also a former Goldman Sachs executive. Linda McMahon, she's been picked to run the Small Business Administration. She uh, she was the uh, CEO of the World Wrestling Entertainment uh, Group. Uh, She helped ensure the wrestling industry remained largely unregulated. Fast food mogul Andy Puzder, he's set to head the U.S. Department of Labor. His companies are known for being anti-worker and anti-union. Wilbur Ross, a billionaire whose firm has profited from buying distressed firms and cutting workers' benefits. He's under consideration for the secretary of the U.S. Department of Commerce. And, of course, Rex Tillerson, Trump's secretary of state pick, who made his career as the CEO of ExxonMobil. You can find out more about all of them at corporatecabinet.org. But we will speak specifically about Rex Tillerson, CEO of ExxonMobil, set to become the uh, secretary of state or at least to begin his hearings this week with still conflicts of interest that uh, very few senators, very few in the public, of course, may know about it all. We'll talk about that next with my guest. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Back in 2011, the Washington Post reports today, as President Obama was trying to extend the deadline for U.S. troops to leave Iraq under an agreement set by George W. Bush before he left office, ExxonMobil was busy making a deal with Kurds in the northern part of Iraq to explore potential new oil fields in the largely autonomous uh, Kurdistan region. The deal, however, was in conflict with U.S. foreign policy at the time as the Iraqi government, concerned about the growing power of separatist Kurds in the north, wanted to control all oil production in the country 
and all of the deals struck with companies like ExxonMobil. As the Post reports today, the deal overseen by ExxonMobil CEO Rex Tillerson at the time, whose confirmation hearings to become Secretary of State begin Wednesday, defied U.S. foreign policy aims, placing the company's financial interests above the American goal of creating a stable, cohesive Iraq. U.S. diplomats had asked Exxon and other firms to wait fee, uh, for such deals, feel, fearing that such deals would undermine their credibility with Iraqi authorities and worsen ethnic tensions that had led Iraq to the brink of civil war. A law governing nationwide oil investments was tied up in the Iraqi parliament and Iraqi officials were rejecting Kurdistan's authority to export oil or cut its own deals. But only a few days after Exxon signed its deal with the Kurds anyway, Obama, President Obama abruptly announced that the U.S. talks with Iraq about keeping troops in the country had failed. All U.S. troops would be gone by the year's end. The episode of Petro Diplomacy, as Washington Post reports, it illustrates Exxon's willingness to blaze its own course in pursuit of corporate interests, even when it threatens to collide with U.S. foreign policy. If Tillerson is confirmed, Philip, uh, Philip Gordon, a former White House coordinator for Middle East policy now, says, I would hope that he'd realize he's serving the interests of the country and not the interests of Exxon. But will he? And, by the way, even if he does, how can we know? When people discuss conflicts of interest for public officials, they often refer to the appearance of conflicts of interest because even the appearance of personal interest tied into public policy can lead to a loss of confidence in public policy decisions made by officials, especially high-ranking officials like a secretary of state. Now, I noted in the previous segment of the broadcast that the Office of Governmental Ethics had sent a letter to U.S. senators warning that many of Trump's nominees for top positions have yet to even complete their standard ethics vetting that the office traditionally carries out for all presidential nominees prior to their Senate confirmation hearings. In the case of Rex Tillerson, he owns uh, some $180 million worth of ExxonMobil stock that will vest over the next decade. But as David Arkish reports at CitizenBox.org late last week, Tillerson will have to divest of those holdings if he becomes Secretary of State. Late last week, it was reported that Exxon and Tillerson struck a deal to sever ties with the company. But Arkish notes the government, uh, I'm sorry, the agreement is not as cut and dry as it's been characterized and that documents filed by Exxon with the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission reveal a discrepancy in the agreement between Exxon and Tillerson as well as the company that is set to serve as uh, as the trustee for monies given by Exxon to Tillerson over the next several years. So enormous questions like these persist concerning whether Tillerson's top interest will be or can be the U.S. or will it be his own personal and potentially continuing interests in the success of ExxonMobil, the only company for whom the 64-year-old Tillerson has ever worked. Here to discuss the apparent discrepancies in the Tillerson-Exxon agreement and similar potential uh, conflicts of interest in Tillerson's holdings and his interest in Exxon, 
uh, is David Arkish. He's the managing director of Public Citizens Climate Program. Before that, he spent five years directing Public Citizens Congress Watch Division. He was the managing editor of the Harvard Civil Rights Civil Liberties Law Review. He spent years advocating for consumers before all three branches of government, as a litigator, an expert congressional witness, and a lobbyist for the passage of such laws like the Consumer Product Safety Improvement Act of 2008 and the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2010. David Arkish, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thanks for having me on. So before explaining the discrepancy that you found in, the, uh, in these Exxon documents that were filed with the, FB, uh, with the SEC, what is the basic agreement in, in layman's terms that uh, Tillerson and Exxon have struck uh, that will supposedly divest him of, of any conflicts of interest with the company? Well, the basic deal is that uh, as it stands right now, Tillerson has around $180 million worth of stock that he's going to receive from Exxon over the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be a problem. Uh, it would be illegal, actually, for him to uh, to be receiving you know, stock, any kind of compensation from Exxon while he's Secretary of State, unless he recuses himself from all sorts of matters that, that he would have to do as Secretary of State. That's a, a terrible idea to have a Secretary of State who needs to recuse himself from a lot of important business. Uh, so they need to find a way to sever his ties with the company and make sure he doesn't have a financial interest in the company anymore. The the the, the basic idea of the deal that they struck is uh, to cash out all of the stock that he's or the value of mm-hmm. the stock that he's going to receive over the next ten years with a with a slight discount and put the money in a trust and uh, and have him just get payments from the trust over the next 10 years, basically on the same schedule that he would have gotten these stock options. Right. So, so, so the idea is that he, he's just going to be getting about you know, roughly the same amount of money, uh, but, it, but no longer have any interest in, in ExxonMobil because the money's already set aside and he gets it. The value of that money doesn't go up and down uh, based on Exxon's performance the way, the way you know, stock would. So it would, it would not go up and down. They're going to come up with a, a, a sort of a median price that they consider that it might be worth over the next 10 years and just cash it all out right now and, and put it into a blind trust? They're actually going to base it on, the, I think, when, uh, the day they do the deal, they'll base the value on the average of the last 10 days of trading or something like that. So I think they're not even going to try to mm-hmm. project the future price. That's, part, that's why they're doing a little bit of a discount. The discount is slight. I think they're going to take about, they're going to give them like 1.6% less than the actual value of the stock. Okay. So that sounds fair. He, he, he will no longer have any interest in whether the stock goes up or down for ExxonMobil. The money is in, a, is in a trust. He doesn't have anything to do with it. Uh, but then you say you find an opening for Tillerson to profit off of Exxon in the future anyway as you read these documents that were filed with the SEC? Well, yeah, here's the hitch. So one of these, uh, they filed two documents with the SEC. One is an agreement between Exxon and Tillerson. Mm-hmm. One is an agreement between Exxon and the company that's going to be managing the trust. And the agreement between Exxon and Tillerson says that, uh, this sounds like a pretty good provision, if Tillerson goes back to any company in the oil and gas industry mm-hmm. in the next 10 years, uh, he forfeits the remaining money in the trust. And actually it goes to a charity of the trustees choosing, who a charity that works on uh, alleviating disease and poverty in the developing world. Um, but if you, that's in the agreement between Exxon and Tillerson. Uh-huh. But in the agreement between Exxon and the trust, uh, the trustee, uh-huh. uh, it actually says that uh, he only forfeits the remaining money in the trust if he goes back to any 
oil and gas company other than Exxon. Uh, so that would leave him with a clear incentive to still favor Exxon as uh, Secretary of State, because it's the first of all it's the company he's worked at his entire right. career, uh, but also it's the only company that he could go work for and still be getting these massive payments uh, from this trust. He would certainly have an incentive to make sure that Exxon still exists right. when he's done as Secretary of State, right. uh, and. Um, uh, and beyond that, that they're very, that they're still really happy with him and want to hire him. So, uh, uh, but but does his agreement that he filed with the SEC say that uh, if he goes to any oil company, that he has to forfeit that money? Well, so the again, the agreement with Exxon says that if it, if he goes to any oil company, he has to he forfeits the money. But mm-hmm. the but the agreement that actually sets up the trust itself, right? Let's him go back to Exxon and still get the money. So, is is it possible that that is a discrepancy? Obviously, uh, yeah. Have you been able to get any more details on which of those two agreements? I guess the question is, which of those two agreements is correct? Uh, and is it possible that that conflict that you found, that discrepancy that you found, is it possible that's just an oversight in the in these legal documents or a, a, a loophole? Yes, but accidentally it, left in the agreement. It, it is certainly possible that it's an oversight. Uh, I mean, you, want, you have to sort of account for that possibility. On the other hand, uh, Exxon loves its lawyers, and uh-huh. it hires good lawyers. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Exxon has a lot of the, you know, has some of the best legal assistants in the world. Uh, they know how to do their work. They know how to do it well. Uh, it, it would be very surprising if it was yeah. just a mistake, and uh, it's possible. But um, and, and that really, really, the question is, why does this discrepancy exist? You know, there's a tiny possibility that the, that the that the documents don't mean what we think they do. So okay. that the the language of the trust agreement doesn't actually explicitly say he's he's permitted to go back to Exxon and no one else, or he forfeits his money. It, it uses this phrase, which is a term of art. It says he. Uh, he will forfeit the money if he engages in competitive employment in the oil and gas industry. Uh-huh. Now, that's, a, that's, that's language that you use when you're writing a non-compete clause that basically says you can't go work for anyone other than us. Right. Um, so, it's, it would, again, maybe they would say that that means something other than what the whole world would think it means, but, but, but that, mm. that type of phrasing you know, has a pretty established meaning legally. So that would be odd. Um, anyway, it, it is... It is it's possible it was just a mistake. Uh, obviously, a huge question is which of the two agreements would govern yeah. if they if it goes into effect as is. Uh, I, that could be a really complicated legal question. I don't know. I would be concerned that the main one that actually is going to govern uh, as a practical matter is going to be the trust agreement because it's the trustee who makes decisions mm-hmm. on whether to dole out this money in the first instance. And the trustee is going to look at the trustee's own document that sets up the trust and tells the trustee what to do and what not to do. Uh, so who's going to stop him if the trustee you know, mm-hmm. continues to give tillers and payments mm-hmm. when he goes back to Exxon Mobil uh, uh, based now, on what he sees written in the, in the trust document? Now, you say when he goes back to Exxon Mobil, but you note that uh, Tillerson, uh, under the current policy in any event at Exxon Mobil, uh, Tillerson could not be rehired. He's he's 64 years old now, and uh, the current policy says that uh, they couldn't rehire Tillerson, at least as an employee, after he leaves government service because there's a mand- uh, mandatory retirement age of 65. But you found a loophole in that one as well, correct? 
Well, uh, it's not so much founded as, as, as there's plenty of, you know, there's every reason to think it probably exists, right. which is, you know, he can't be a direct employee under current policy, but uh, I haven't seen any reason why they couldn't hire him back as a consultant or a contractor. Uh, and, of course, they have uh, set mm-hmm. compensation policies right now, and uh, including and, and, and the compensation arrangement that he has with them right now, uh, follows those policies and the compensation arrangement that they the deal that they've just struck with him mm-hmm. to enable him to become Secretary of State does not follow their current compensation policies. So who's to say that they wouldn't also bend the rules about their retirement yeah. policies if they wanted to hire him? Exactly. Again? I mean, he's been with them what thirty, forty years at this point. Uh, it's the right. only place he's ever worked. Now, have you heard from any of the uh, any of the U.S. senators or their offices, uh, the folks who will be participating in the Tillerson hearings this week, whether that w- whether they even know about this? Much less are concerned about this uh, enough to bring it up in the uh, in the hearings that start this week. We we made sure they know about it, and I think we'll I think we'll see some questions about it. We've been reporting that uh, the hearings for U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions are being uh, greatly truncated compared to previous similar uh, hearings for U.S. Attorneys General, uh, both in the days and the number of witnesses that will be called. Do we know yet whether Tillerson's hearing is going to be uh, similarly truncated as far as days, time, and, and the number of uh, allowable witnesses? Well, in general, it seems like, yes, they're trying to cram a whole bunch of nominees uh, through mm-hmm. all at once. Uh, they're, scheduled, they're sort of stacking them up um, on a really tight schedule, having you know, overlapping, having you know, multiple major high-profile nominees uh, go through the process on the same day. Um, it looks like a pretty deliberate tactic to make sure that none of them get you know, adequate scrutiny, or certainly as much scrutiny as detractors would like them to have. Do Do we know if uh, the government office of ethics, which has been warning that a lot of these uh, nominees have not yet been fully vetted, uh, do we know if they fully vetted Rex Tillerson? Uh, I think uh, I think he's gotten most of his paperwork in, perhaps all of it, except that uh, Senator Card and the ranking member of the. Uh, Foreign Relations Committee would really like to see his tax returns, which I think makes a lot of sense. And he hasn't filed those. And in fact, uh, Senator Corker, who's the chair of the committee, has mm-hmm. been telling Tillerson not to submit his tax returns. Really? So we've got a partisan fight about whether we even want to know uh, everything that there is to know about uh, his financial interests. Uh, on what basis is Corker saying don't uh, file your, your tax? That's something that's kind of been standard for, for decades now when it comes to uh, top cabinet uh, appointees, has it not? That's right, and in fact, some of uh, some of Obama's appointees actually ended up uh, uh, losing their nominations uh, on the basis of tax problems that they had. So, what? Why is Corker saying don't do it? What what argument is he is he giving well, for yeah. turning yeah, him me in? Me personally, I'd say it's pure politics. I don't yeah. think he has a good explanation. I I think, if I recall, he has just sort of said things like. He has just uh, been sort of accusing the other side of having bad motives and wanting to see them. Playing politics by wanting to yeah. see what his conflicts of interest are. As someone who has uh, covered energy for as long as you have, does any of this put you at ease? If they were able to, to, to work out that uh, the conflict of interest or the, the discrepancy that you found in those documents, does any of that put you at, at ease You know, with, with Tillerson's history as CEO of ExxonMobil and how that comes into conflict with U.S. policy on climate change specifically? 
Well, I'm glad you asked that because uh, no, it doesn't give me any comfort. Uh, absolutely not. I, I and I hope this doesn't get lost in in, mm-hmm. in the complications and the, the sort of technical and legal questions about what conflicts he might have and what he's going to do with this 180 million dollars in stock. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bigger issue at stake here, which is uh, Rex Tillerson has been the head of ExxonMobil for the last 10 years. Uh, ExxonMobil is the entire is the only place he's worked for his entire career. Mm-hmm. He went there in 1975. Mm. Right? Since 1975, he has viewed the entire world through the lens of what's good for Exxon, uh, including the last 10 years as CEO. Now, a lot of people take a look at that record and, and are critical of the fact that he has no government experience and you know, technically, I guess, in a certain sense, no foreign policy experience. I don't think that's the issue. I don't think the issue is that he doesn't have experience. I think the issue is that he does have experience, and he has a very particular type of experience. He has spent 41 years working at a single company that has a single motive, which is to make money by finding oil around the world, digging it up, and burning it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in the, for the last 10 years, he's been overseeing the entire operation. ExxonMobil operates in around 200 company, uh, countries, practically every country in the world. Yeah. His only perspective on those, he certainly has foreign policy experience, right? He's been overseeing sure. those operations. He's been, you know, spending his time trying to advance Exxon's interests. He's, he's, he's made clear his philosophy uh, when asked. Uh, he says he, he does whatever is going to make money. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is the lens through which he's looked at his relationships with all these countries. His only perspective on you know, 200 countries around the world is what's good for ExxonMobil. And as a result, he's been doing things like cozying up to Vladimir Putin, getting the Kremlin's order of friendship. Uh, he's been critical of U.S. foreign policy, like sanctions against Russia when it invaded Ukraine and stole some Ukrainian territory a couple of years ago. Uh, he's opposed to sanctioning Russia for that conduct. Uh, he would rather, I guess, tell Russia it can do whatever it wants and just take over other uh, other countries and take their territory uh, because Exxon wants to do a big oil deal there. Uh, he's cozied up to China. He's cozied up to some of the worst dictators in the world, uh, in Chad and Equatorial Guinea. Um, so, yeah, he has a lot of foreign policy experience. It's all through the lens of what's good for ExxonMobil, what will profit ExxonMobil. And... and I don't know if he can tell the difference between what's good for the country and what's good for ExxonMobil. I don't know. If, I, I don't think we should take the chance. I don't think we should trust him well, with, it, that, it, with that kind of important position. Well, and here's one point that uh, is also kind of confusing and in conflict with a whole bunch of things. Uh, ExxonMobil has spent uh, millions of dollars, we now know, over the past uh, at least 30 years funding climate change denial groups despite knowing about the concerns uh, 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 concerning uh, uh, cli- uh, climate change and uh, burning fossil fuels. Nonetheless, they claim, the company claims to believe that climate change is real as part of their policy and that it's man-made. Uh, that position alone is also in conflict with Donald Trump, if not with current U.S. policy. It seems like, wh- do, do we have any indication of what Rex Tillerson's actual policy will be when it comes to climate change, when it comes to the Paris Agreement, when it comes to any of that stuff, or is that all to be hopefully learned in the confirmation hearings this week? Yeah. 
We don't. We don't know. Uh, and I don't know that we can believe what he says. I mean, he has told senators privately that he accepts the climate science. Mm-hmm. Of course, Exxon's position publicly is that it, it mm-hmm. accepts the climate science. It, it clearly doesn't. Uh, and it's been funding deniers, as you've, mm-hmm. as you've said. Uh, I don't think... I don't think people realize actually the gravity of the climate issue. I think you know there has been a lot of discussion. There's been more focus on his relationship with Russia and some of these foreign policy issues. I think in part because if he's not, you know, if his comfort, if his nomination is going to be defeated, it's going to be defeated with some Republican votes. And uh, and I think you know people's judgment is you're more likely to to win a handful of Republican votes by uh, playing up. By bashing Russia rather than ties to Russia, than you are getting concerned about climate change. Right, but I but I think that that you know that that really misunderstands the climate issue. It's it's you know it is actually climate change is the most serious threat facing the United States. It is the most serious threat to our national interests, to our national security directly, uh, but also to our economy, uh, to our public health. It is. We are headed toward utter disaster, and the notion that somebody who has been funding groups that are trying to sow confusion and denial and fight mm-hmm. positive action on climate change, I mean, you might as well say you're funding groups that are actually trying to directly undermine the interests of the United States. I, I think there's just no room for somebody like that in in in. Uh, in any position that has anything to do with U.S. interests, with U.S. foreign policy, with U.S. security. Uh, I don't want somebody who denies climate change, who denies the existence of the most serious threat to the United States uh, as our top diplomat and, uh, and, and someone who's setting foreign policy. And yet we're about to do that not only with uh, Rex Tillerson, but with a whole host of climate deniers that uh, Trump has appointed uh, or at least has nominated for top cabinet positions. Uh, David Arkish, before you go, uh, you, you've spent many years uh, lobbying Congress. Is there anything that Americans, citizens can do to discourage the uh, appointment of, of Tillerson and these other folks? How, how do you reach these uh, uh, Congress members? Or is it just, uh, have we lost all hope at this point, David? Uh, you can definitely reach them. I mean, call them. Call them and tell them what you think. Tell them to block climate deniers. Tell them to block Tillerson for being, you know, a climate denier for being cozy with Russia uh, and all these other terrible countries. Uh, call them up, and it makes a difference. It makes a difference regardless of where you live, because if you, you know, if your if your senators are Republicans, uh, you want to get their votes and you want to get them to vote against somebody and maybe change their minds or bolster people who are thinking about voting the uh, the right way on this. And if you, uh, if your senators are Democrats, the Democrats are are faced with uh, some big questions about their direction over the next four years and how they're going to react to the Trump administration, and they're deciding uh, you know, actively how they're going to choose their battles, what they're going to fight, what they're not going to fight. If you want them to fight this, call them and tell them to. David Arkish, uh, find his work at Public Citizen, where he is the uh, pub- the managing director of Public Citizen's climate program. You can go to citizen.org slash energy. You can also find him on the Twitters at David underscore Arkish. That's A-R-K-U-S-H. David, great talking to you. Uh, hope to do so again in the future. Great talking to you, Brad. Thanks. Thank you. All right, a quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Hooray for Hollywood. That screwy ballyhooey Hollywood. Yes. Wear any office for your young Hooray for Hollywood. I'm in favor of it. Yes, we are right here broadcasting from Hollywood. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. But uh, I'm uh, cheering for Hollywood not because of... Uh, uh, they're the local favorites, since that's where we are. Uh, but because of what went on last night at the Golden Globe Awards, the awards that are uh, given each and every year, I guess. I don't watch Do you watch uh, the Golden Globes, Des? Only sometimes. Yeah. I uh, do like to see the dresses. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, the, the dresses were on display at these awards yes, uh, from the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Best Supporting Actor in a miniseries went to Hugh Laurie, who's a great actor, by the way. Oh, great yeah. actor. Loved him in Veep. If you, if you haven't seen Veep on HBO, if you're one of these uh, Netflix people who like to binge watch stuff, uh, start watching Veep. Start from the beginning. But the last, uh, the most recent season, I think was it season three or season four, was great. And Hugh Laurie was great in it. But that's not what he got the award for. He got the award for The Night Manager. And he immediately uh, went about uh, angering Republicans across the planet. Well done, Hugh. Here's, uh, here's his comments last night. Thank you, first of all, to the uh, Hollywood Foreign Press Association um, for this amazing honor. I suppose made more amazing by the fact that I'll be able to say I won this at the last ever Golden Globes. Um, I don't, I don't mean to be gloomy, it's just that it has the words Hollywood, Foreign and Press in the title. I just don't know what... Um, I also think that uh, to some Republicans, even the word association is slightly sketchy. Um, so I, I accept this award on behalf of psychopathic billionaires everywhere. Well done, Hugh Laurie. Uh, later in the evening, Meryl Streep was awarded the Cecil B. DeMille Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, in her nearly four decades long career, Meryl Streep has been nominated for 30 Golden Globe Awards and 19 Academy Awards. That is more than any other actor for either of those two honors. Nonetheless, uh, she did not speak much about her own career when she accepted the uh the Lifetime Achievement Award last night. Rather, she spoke about the international diversity of the other nominees, and there were a lot of them. The other nominees and the other award winners uh, uh, that night, she spoke critically of the current political climate and, yes, about Donald Trump. Specifically, she referred to his his now infamous, I think this is now infamous, hopefully people know, because if you play it, it doesn't mean much because you can't see the gestures that he, Trump is making. But hopefully it's now infamous, his physical mocking and his public bullying last year of New York Times reporter Serge Kovaleski, who has uh, atherogryposis. Is that how you do? You, do you have any Kudla, idea? I, I don't know yeah. exactly. Sorry. That's uh, uh, with this uh, visibly uh, limits the functioning of his limbs and his joints. 
And, of course, Donald Trump made fun of him after the journalist had the temerity to rebut Trump's inaccurate and disproven claims that Kovaleski uh, had reported that thousands of Muslims in New Jersey had cheered after the World Trade Center towers fell on 9-11. Kovaleski said, uh, no, I didn't. No, I never supported that. And, of course, Donald Trump went out and uh, made fun of his physical demeanor. Here's Meryl Streep uh, talking about that, her remarks at the Golden Globes last night in response. There was one performance this year that stunned me. It, it sank its hooks in my heart. Not because it was good. It was, there was nothing good about it. But it was effective and it did its job. It made its intended audience laugh and show their teeth. It was that moment when the person asking to sit in the most respected seat in our country, imitated a disabled reporter, someone he outranked in privilege, power, and the capacity to fight back. It, it kind of broke my heart when I saw it, and I still can't get it out of my head because it wasn't in a movie. It was real life. And this instinct to humiliate, when it's modeled by someone in the public platform, by someone powerful. It filters down into everybody's life because it kind of gives permission for other people to do the same thing. Disrespect invites disrespect. Violence incites violence. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. Okay, go up with that thing. Okay, this brings me to the press. We need the principled press to hold power to account, to, to call them on the carpet for every outrage. That's why, that's why our founders enshrined the press and its freedoms in our Constitution. So I only ask the famously well-heeled Hollywood foreign press and all of us in our community to join me in supporting the committee to protect journalists because we're going to need them going forward and they'll need us to safeguard the truth. One more thing. As my, as my friend, the dear departed Princess Leia said to me once, Take your broken heart, make it into art. Thank you for it. That was Meryl Streep at the Golden Globe Awards accepting her Lifetime Achievement uh, Award, the Cecil B. DeMille Award, calling on, calling on the press to do their job uh, and uh, call out Donald Trump for, uh, to hold him account for, to account for his outrages. Uh, she cites the Committee to Protect Journalists. You can get more information on them at cpj.org. Dozens of uh, journalists are killed each and every year around the world trying to do their job. The uh, uh, CPJ tries to help uh, protect them. 
And uh, that's who she was uh, citing, cpj.org, if you want to help. Uh, I, uh, whether, the, whether the media will be able to do their job or not, or will be willing to do their job or not, remains to be seen. I know they certainly weren't during the, uh, during the Bush era. I think they're a lot better now in many ways as far as their... <sighs> as far as their aggressiveness, but as far as their accuracy and as far as their willingness to call these people on the carpet, even if it might lose them access to to Donald Trump, to any of his uh, nominees for office, that remains to be seen. I don't have much confidence in in the corporate media in that regard. And I and I, that makes me very sad to hear that because I I concur with you. I don't have a whole lot of confidence in the ability of the corporate media, especially, to hold their feet to the fire, to hold them accountable. Uh, you know, when we're talking about having multiple uh, a confirmation mm, hearings yeah. and a press conference and everything all at once on the same day, purposely orchestrated by the Republicans in Congress and by the Trump, uh, it, the it, incoming it, Trump administration. This is clearly an attempt to make it impossible yeah. for the it, media to cover that. And that would be even, even on they, a good day. Yeah, exactly. Even if they wanted to. Uh, in response, by the way, to uh, Streep's uh, comments today uh, for her call for an aggressive, fearless media holding power accountable, Trump tweeted that Streep, the nation's most celebrated and awarded actress, was little more than, quote, a Hillary flunky and one of the most overrated actresses in Hollywood. <laughs> And he would know. Good luck with that. Uh, remember when the, the the right used to want a more aggressive U.S. media? Uh, Streep just called for one, but I think maybe that's not what folks on the right actually want, at least not anymore. Uh, it's it's going to be difficult for Republicans to call out those Hollywood actors, though, this time. What do they know about politics? They're Hollywood actors. Well, you just elected a reality TV star as president of the United States. But why should embarrassment and hypocrisy stop them now? They'll do it anyway. <laughs> oh my, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Uh, to my guest today, David Arkish of Public Citizen. Get more uh, information on them at citizen.org. And my thanks to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com along with I think every other program we have ever done is also available there as well you can drop me an email if you like I'm bradcast at bradblog.com you can find follow and share everything we do on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad blog and my thanks as ever to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue doing what we do here on the Bradcast and at bradblog.com and everywhere else. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 